Okay. Find me something wholesome. Okay. Uh, it's funny about that. It's fun for the whole family. Yeah, that's the thing with Greek tragedy. It just gets worse and worse. All right. Uh, the three tragedians we've studied represent three generations. And these three generations are the entirety of the golden age of Greece. So here we're talking about 5th century BC, roughly from Marathon until the death of Socrates in 399. All right. Aeschylus is an old-fashioned thinker, all right, with a beautiful poetic diction. I mean, he has a lot going for him. Um, his, his characters are always morally upright, one way or another, but they make regrettable mistakes. Shows us all something. All right. uh, Greek culture is about heroism. That's what Homer is about. That's what tragedy is about. And that, it's going to turn out, that's what their philosophy is about, too. In other words, what's the best human beings can do? How do we push the envelope of our capacities? All right. That's the secret idea behind the myth of Prometheus. He's going to sneak up. Why? Because the gods are not omniscient. Zeus is drunk. Zeus is drunk, asleep. Zeus is chasing mortal women. You can get up there and steal the, feis, the fire of the gods. No, that you can't do that with Yahweh. Nobody gets over on Yahweh. That's a big difference. Okay? So the biblical perspective, which is the, the perspective that comes from Jerusalem rather than Athens, is not Prometheus, but Job. God, said, God lets the devil do really bad stuff to Job for no good reason. That's part of the story. And then Job says, God's doing this to me for no good reason. And his friend says, no, we all understand God's ways. And it turns out that Job says, no, you're all wrong. And then God shows up and talks to him from a tornado and says, listen, I make the rules here, not you. All right. um, you think you're entitled to an answer. You're not entitled to Jack. Right. No, God doesn't owe us anything. That's actually one of the important lessons there. Anybody who shakes his fist at heaven and says, look, I didn't get what I'm, what I'm entitled to, is just mistaken as to what they're entitled to. You're lucky to exist at all, much less to stop existing. I mean, come on, give God a break. All right, so um, the tradition that comes out of Athens is one of heroism, all right, of pushing the envelope. And of course, that leads to tragic mistakes. On the other hand, the tradition that comes out of Jerusalem is a tradition of resignation. Take it on the chin and don't blaspheme because God has his reasons and you don't know what they are. So Job says, okay, you know, dish it out. And God kills his family and everything and does bad stuff to him. And then uh, at the end, he gets everything back, which is the dumbest and weirdest happy ending you could imagine in the story. But um, sometime, if I had the chance, I would love to do a reading of the Bible with you. It's amazing the stuff you can find there. If you actually read it and think about it, one of the problems that Catholics have is that we don't know the Bible nearly as well as we ought, and our Protestant friends know it a lot better than we do, which is kind of a scandal. I mean, if God's sending you a letter, you might as well open it. What the hell's wrong with you? No, I don't understand why people don't take it up themselves and decide to read this. Um, if you're waiting for your teachers to educate you, don't wait forever. The fact of the matter is, if you're going to get an education, you're going to educate yourself. Put this on your list. 
You should have done a cover to cover on the Bible by this phase in your education. The fact that you haven't is uh, testimony to why we need that theology course in scripture. All right, alleviate some of that problem. Now, Euripides, mm-hmm. he's one twisted individual. Um, I have real mixed feelings about him. He's an amazing talent, but I don't know about this guy's outlook on the world. I've said this before, I don't know if I've said it to you, but uh, Euripides reminds me of the ancient, it seems to be the ancient analog of, uh, what am I thinking of? Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino, that's my man, yeah. In other words, that, well, no, if you've ever seen a Quentin Tarantino movie, you say, that is the most twisted stuff I have ever encountered. How the hell did you think this up? <laughs> no, have you ever seen um, you know, any of his movies? Uh, Reservoir Dogs, it's a great movie, but it's obviously black as night. How about uh, uh, Pulp Fiction? There's, everywhere you look, there's just some kind of depravity, and that's all it's there. Right? There's twisted people doing twist, twisted stuff and causing their own destruction than the, that of other people. In other words, it's Euripides. All right? Euripides was not as popular as either Aeschylus or Sophocles. He wrote something over 90 plays, of which 20-something survive. And he only had five wins out of that 90. Right? Now, there'd be three play uh, groupings, but still, Sophocles and Aeschylus are what people really like. They want to be reassured. They, they were decidedly uncertain as to what this was supposed to do to them, except, except scare the bejesus out of them. Right. Um, Euripides is an astute observer of human nature, and he introduces something that tragedy hasn't had before, which is realism. Right. Uh, Aeschylus's words are so high-flown and, uh, um, and worthy and serious that he makes his players seem like archetypes. They, they're just images. They're, they're too extreme to be uh, human in, in the way that we are. Whereas Euripides' players, Euripides' characters, are human, all too human. And they have many of the same difficulties and impulses that we have. It's just that they're on a larger scale. Uh, Euripides lives through and works through the quarter century of the Peloponnesian War. So his plays are often keyed into the events that are going on. There's a reason why I have you do Thucydides before I have you do the others. So you know where to place this stuff. It turns out that Thucydides is going to be invaluable for our understanding of what was going on. All right? You need the political background. All right? If you just looked at American politics today and you left out things like international affairs, like our difficulties with China, you get a very strange understanding of how things work. All right? So you need to see it in political context. All right? This is a society that had it all. They thought, remember uh, Pericles' funeral oration, they thought they were the best society that, ever been, that had ever been created, and they may well have been right in terms of their achievements, 
Um, they're like amphibians that have pulled themselves out of the water for the first time. I mean, this is a, an epoch-making change when we move from Homeric culture to this new culture of rationality, science, and eventually philosophy. Euripides is a contemporary of Socrates. Both of them are great at irony, and irony, this is something we're thinking about because it'll actually pertain to a number of uh, times and places that we encounter in the course of this two years. Um, irony is always a sign that a cultural trend is dying. In other words, think of yourselves as uh, physicians examining societies. A symptom of the, that you're close to death is when a society becomes saturated in irony when it's all a series of in-jokes, where we laugh about our aspirations and instead succumb to a certain kind of all-too-knowing cynicism. Right. Uh, that was true of the last generation of Periclean Athens, which is what we're in now. It was also true at the end of the Enlightenment, which is when you get guys like Rousseau or any of you, have any of you read uh, Voltaire's Candide? Okay, what does it mean? The Enlightenment is breaking up. Reason has been oversold, and it turns out it's not going to solve all our problems, which means that they've lost faith in the Enlightenment, and they're setting the, the stage for the next big change, which will be Romanticism. All right, see how that works? Irony is, again, a sign that a culture is dying. Postmodernism, saturated in irony. All right? Um, nobody really knows anything, no certainty is possible, everything is contingent and socially constructed, and reality is whatever we decide it is. All right. The irony there, of course, is that um, many people would like to live forever, but they haven't been successful in refusing to socially construct death. You see the problem there. Right? Um, the idea that everything is a, a set of categories and a set of symbols and everything is linguistic. I refute it thus. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's all I can do. We're past discussion now. Either you believe there's an external world or you don't. And if you believe that the external world is something you create, try walking off the top of the building. Right? Everybody talks a great game until you ask them, well, um, how do you actually realize that in the world? Well, although we socially construct death, it seems that it's all coming for us anyway. And whether we socially construct it or not, we don't live forever. Once again, postmodernism is saturated in irony. I think postmodernism died on 9-11-01, which would be only just about the time you were born. Right thereabouts, a little bit. You were born a little bit earlier. But yeah, I think that we're in a new age now, but the intellectuals haven't figured that out yet. They need to be reminded. But that's, yes? Why do you think that was the best postmodernism? Um, because uh, we realized that Buildings falling on people are not socially constructive. They are real, all too real. And uh, I mean, I was in New Jersey that, that day, and uh, my brother, lived, you know, was close by. But uh, I nearly, I lost friends and family—not uh, family, but friends there. And uh, it turns out that um, irony won't carry you through that. Right? You actually have to believe in something to come back from that. And yeah. Um, the idea that 
or the idea that we were forced to, to encounter on 9-11 is that ideas have consequences. Nobody rides for free. What you believe and what you think will have an effect on your life whether you like it or not. Um, I could go on and sermonize on that topic, but not now. Right, I'll vent my spleen some other day. <laughs> For now, I'd like to talk about Euripides, because he's a, he's a fun guy. Right? He is a brilliant writer, but like Dostoevsky, he likes the dark corners of the human mind, which are just really twisted and perverse. For example, he writes an Electra play. Now, you know who Electra is because you've read the Orstaya. But in his Electra play, Orestes shows up 10 years after Dad's dead, and Electra is still wearing her mourning clothes at the shrine of her dead father, um, mourning him. And Orestes uh, uh, comes in and says, what's up, Electra? I mean, I've been gone 10 years, and here you are still in mourning. Um, it becomes very clear in Euripides' Electra that Electra has a very unwholesome sexual desire for her dead father. Look, that's what Euripides is going to give you. It's not intrinsic to the Electra story, but it's intrinsic to Euripides' version of the Electra <laughs> story. All right? There's nothing that he can't take and twist into something weird. All right? On the other hand, there's a certain sort of realism here. We encounter people who make these kind of mistakes all too often, and sometimes we're the ones making similar mistakes, all right? Athens, the great center of Greek culture. They got science, they got medicine, they got poetry, they got tragedy, they got philosophy, they got everything. They got sculpture, they got art, they got architecture. This is arguably the greatest society that's ever, that's existed up to that time, which is no small achievement, all right? Well, Euripides says, yeah, it's really great, but nothing lasts forever. And not only does nothing last forever, but your hubris is going to hunt you down and kill you. All right? Your pride goeth before a fall. And in Athens, during the Golden Age, the great change, not in politics, but in what I might call philosophical psychology, is that human beings are no longer strictly the products of nomos, like they were in Herodotus. Remember when they argued about what you should do with your dead father's body? Okay, it's not just nomos. People, can people are rational animals, and if they decide to be rational, they can do amazing things like create the Parthenon, all right, or uh, produce great science. Now here's the problem. It's very easy to make a mistake in, in this kind of thinking and go too far. It is true that people sometimes are rational. There's no doubt about that, okay? Uh, on the other hand, there's nobody who's rational all the time, right? We are not actually rational. We are potentially rational, which is a very different view. If we work really hard, we may be able to see things objectively. We can clear away the fog of our feelings, sometimes. But other times we can't. And those times when our feelings take control of us, when our emotions or our passions get the better of us, that is personified in Dionysus. 
So here's the deal. Athena is the patron goddess of the city. Why? She's the goddess of wisdom, and she has all these great ideas, like uh, at the end of the Orsaya and the Eumenides. Athena is the, image, the feminine image of wisdom, moderation, uh, proportion. She's the feminine analog of Apollo. Now, Apollo is the inverse of Dionysus. One refers to reason. Remember that he's the sun god. He's the god of light, of clarity, of seeing, of understanding. At the Oracle at Delphi, two major imperatives carved into the pediment. One, know thyself. Two, nothing to excess. This is a recipe, if you invert it, for Dionysus. If you don't know yourself, you know who you're going to be? That's right, a devotee of Dionysus. And if you lack a sense of proportion and you go too far, you know who you're doing homage to? Once again, Dionysus. All right? Now, the difficulty is nobody's perfectly rational, not even Socrates, which is, pretty, which is going pretty far. All right? And the Greeks, particularly the Athenians, pride themselves on being these cultured gentlemen. They live a life of leisure, but they also serve the state and engage in warfare. They participate in political life. They make a little money on the side because trade is always good. And they are convinced that they have produced the world's greatest society and that this makes them great too. You see some of this actually in Americans. Right. Um, American exceptionalism. Other countries are messed up. We're in a special case. Well, we are a special case. There is such a thing as American exceptionalism, but it just means that we're messed up in a special way. <laughs> right? No, that's the Augustinian view. Granted, we're, we're, uh, we're messed up in a different way from them. Fair enough. That we're not messed up, you're kidding yourself. <laughs> right? And it's something Americans like to do. We like to be told, wow, this is really great. Well, if we're really great, you wouldn't need to be reminded of it. Give it some thought. Okay, so we are potentially rational animals. How about you? You rational? <laughs> no. How'd you get here to class all the time? I mean, there's a whole bunch of rational stuff you're doing. You got a computer, and you probably work with it and do stuff with it, and you do that without rationality? I don't believe that for a minute. Neither do you. Oh, that's interesting. And would you take a poll? <laughs> I mean, how did you figure that out? Just seeing how other people are good and like act in certain situations and I act differently sometimes. Okay. Um, be careful of appearances. You wouldn't be the only one acting for something other than rational purposes. What about the rest of you? I mean, she's brave. She's irrational. Then came back to rationality briefly. <laughs> the rest of you? You rational? Uh, I'm taking Latin this semester, so no. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I understand. That, that makes sense to me. Um, Latin and Greek and you know foreign language used to make just make me bang my head on the table because there's no easy way to learn this. I'm always looking for a shortcut, and there's no other. You memorize it, you plod through the vocabulary, and then the grammar, and there's no other way to do it. Uh, that's fine. So granted, I can see how that would deprive you of sanity. Um, before that, how were you? 
Rational. You were rational? Yeah. What was rational about you? Oh, um, I could uh, look before I leave. Oh, that's good. Um, why do you think they have rules regulating the use of alcohol on campus? <laughs> Not for you. You were rational. Don't let the rest of them. <laughs> yeah? Might. <laughs> there we go. Might. Yeah, look, I went to college. Stop telling me that. <laughs> um, there is no, I mean, look, even with alcohol prohibited, there's no way of keeping people from doing stupid stuff with alcohol, much less when it's legal. Remember, when, back when I was in college, the legal age, the age of drinking was 18. They bumped it ever since, and college has never been the same. Right? I mean, you don't get to do a keg stand as a freshman yet. Must be a tremendous burden on you. No, you just do a keg stand somewhere uh, else. <laughs> How did I know that? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I went to college. I know the score. So um, people do stupid stuff with alcohol. Um, how many of you have a sex drive? Every one of you is a liar. You're going to go, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. Every one of you does. I mean, unless you have some serious endocrine problem. Uh, yeah, you do. All right? And it's not the kind of thing anybody really wants for their life. Right? There you are, 9 or 10 years old, and you're growing and developing, and things are okay. And then a couple of years later, you start to get these weird mental states where you get pushed around by, by feelings that you don't control and you don't understand. No, think back at your first crush. What is this? This is messing with my brain. And not only that, but it's pushing my body around. The hell does it do that? Welcome to Dionysus. All right? So here's the deal. Like it or not, everybody has an element of Dionysus in their psyche. And if you say that that's not the case, you're clearly either lying or don't know yourself. Or, alternative, and if you are lying, um, don't lie to yourself. Don't tell yourself that you're completely rational. All right? That means like you'd be like Dr. Spock on the old Star Trek. Nobody wants to be like that. And just as well because nobody can. Yeah, there's that, of course. Okay, so we are rational creatures, at least potentially. But we're also driven by passions that are not rational and are mighty powerful. I mean, the reason why they restrict visitation between the dorms is because a sex drive is ubiquitous, and that, can cause, that, that inevitably will cause problems of one kind or another. It always does. All right? If it hasn't yet, it will. That's just the way human life works. Euripides is watching the greatest society in the world take up a war it doesn't need for reasons that don't make all that much sense. Remember that the original <coughs> pretext was Corinth. Remember what Thucydides says? And it's not about Corinth. It's about fighting to see who's the toughest, who's the greatest. In other words, it's another kind of hubris pushing the envelope saying, not only with the greatest at culture and art and philosophy and stuff. We're the greatest at war. We are the greatest at everything. We can't be beaten. 
even I mean, in the middle of the war, the Spartans actually try and, and get a, a truce, and they get a brief truce called the Peace of Nicias. And then the, the Spartans actually want to end the war, which is no small step for the Spartans. And they, the Athenians say, no, this is hubris. All right, this, did, this war didn't have to happen. It doesn't accomplish anything. You could have ended it. No, instead you say, why don't we invest, invade Sicily? So much for rationality. You have a lot of really beautiful statues. They're more rational than most of the people doing the voting. All right. And what we are is the products of hubris. All right. Our culture is built on hubris. That's what the Greeks are about. You can't have excellence without having too much excellence. Right. Nobody's sense of proportion is so perfect that they could find out what the limits are without transgressing them. Thus the human condition. Alright? So know yourself, that's really important. As a matter of fact, there's, there's an argument to make that's what the the majority of Shakespeare's plays are about, self-knowledge, to thine own self be true. Alright? But a second injunction comes along, nothing to excess. And the problem is this, you're not gonna know how much is excessive until you go too far. Can a statue be too beautiful? Well, I don't know, but I'm gonna try and make the most beautiful statue ever made. Can architecture be too perfect? No, I'm gonna try and create the Parthenon, this permanent image of symmetrical beauty. Well, is it possible to cre create the greatest society? Yeah, we did. Let's make it even greater and attack Sicily. You don't find out that that's too much until it's too much. And then it's too late. And then you've made those famous irrevocable mistakes that I said the tragedy are all about, mistakes you can't fix. And so Euripides is a commentator on politics and public life also on the ideas and, and, and uh, self-conceptions that were characteristic of the Athenians. It's worth noting that Euripides was educated by Protagoras, the great relativist, and by Anaxagoras. He's the guy that said the moon is a hot rock, or the sun is a hot rock. So he's demythologized the world. He still pulls out gods and goddesses as needed, right, for the point of his plays. But he has a a much less pious attitude towards the gods than we saw in Aeschylus or even in Sophocles. So he gives you the gods and the goddesses, but he gives them to you ironically. And his most famous use of irony is called the deus ex machina. God from a machine. Here's the deal. Offer a machine is viewed as being a very inartistic way to end a piece of literature. All right. In other words, uh, what story did I give you? Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer goes up and down the uh, Mississippi. He knows Huck Finn. He does has all the adventures that Tom Sawyer does. But suppose uh, Mark Twain said, "You know, I have problems finishing this. Maybe I should just drop Jesus in." and have them say, everybody be cool. 
Well, you could. It's just that that has nothing to do with the story. It doesn't belong there. What it is is an, a very arch, very ironic way of saying, look, this is so messed up that it can't be fixed through any normal human means. So I'm going to drop this down because I can do this on stage. But remember that in your lives, they're just permanently messed up. God doesn't get dropped up through a machine. All right? A good example of the deus ex machina is... Medea's dragon chariot. Had there been any dragons or chariots prior to that? No. So how are we going to get Medea out of there? Because if she's on the ground with Jason, Jason is going to kill her. So we have her fly around, crazy witchy woman, with the corpses of her two children in the car of the uh, chariot, and dragons pull her, and she laughs, cackles crazily, right, while her ex-husband is now crushed because he has lost his children and he's lost the woman, who, the other woman he was going to marry and he's lost Creon and now he is a pariah like Medea herself. Alright? So, uh, Medea's exit there is um, really awkward and artificial and it's a sign that this is another one of those problems you really can't fix. So I'm going to have uh, a chariot full of dragons, take them away. All right. Um, it's inventive, but awkward. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a rule that comes from Chekhov. Do any of you know the Russian novelist or r Russian playwright, short story writer? Chekhov, you should, just to get civilized. But Chekhov said, here's my rule for drama. If in the first act there is a rifle on the wall, by the last act, that rifle has to have been shot at somebody. Otherwise, you're not going to put the rifle on the wall. In other words, there's a reason why you include everything in your plot. And the stuff that you leave out is the stuff that has nothing later to do. Unless, of course, a rifle were to fall from heaven at the very last page and somebody gets shot with it. That would be a deus ex machina. That would be really stupid. Right? Um, Euripides knows it's stupid, but it's his way of saying human life is completely messed up. And for much of it, there's just no way to fix it. The end. And then she flies away on her dragon chariot. Okay. This is a really grim, really pessimistic, contrarian view of human life and Greek culture. He was an old man towards the end of the war. Remember, the war ends in 404. And uh, in 408, he leaves because it's very clear that they have lost the Sicilian forces, and it's very clear that Athens is going to be destroyed. So he takes off, works at the court of someone else. Now, one of the interesting things that happens, he dies, and that's when the Bacchae is put on him, actually by his son. Okay. In 404, after the Spartans overwhelm Athens, they come over the wall, they set the city on fire, they round up the people and are about to kill them all. Um, I mean, this, we don't know if this is a true story, but it may be. It wouldn't surprise me if that were the case. Um, some of the literati, some of those who were uh, literary intellectuals, came out while the Spartans were feasting and drinking the night of their uh, victory. And uh, they spoke, they recited uh, uh, lines that they had memorized from Euripides. And remember, the Spartans don't ever see stuff like this. The Spartans don't have art. All right? They have war and they have relaxation. 
That's it. Okay. The Spartans liked the Euripides so much. I mean, they, they're actually moved by it. They say, let's not destroy this place. And they actually don't. We could have killed everybody. They could have done a, a million dialogue, and they decided not to. Said, no, if you produce stuff like that, I mean, we'll, we'll conquer you, but we'll let you exist. Because, well, I mean, even we're not barbarous enough to kill this off. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, because you got to remember, Spartans don't, I mean, have very minimal kind of public buildings. They don't have much in the way of architecture, right? They don't even have a wall around their city. Right? The Spartans said, look, if you want to invade, come, let's dance. I, we don't need a wall. You need a wall. And the Spartans are right. One of the great lines uh, that uh, Xerxes was said to have sent to the Spartans, he says, it was a, a warning, he says, if I come to Greece and conquer you all, I'm going to exterminate every last Spartan. And the Spartans had a great reply. The reply was, if. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dance. If is a great response. That's one of the great responses ever. Also, he was told by Xerxes, to, you know, Leonidas was told to have everybody put their arms down. And Leonidas' response was, come and take them. <laughs> Let's dance. Come, take them. <laughs> You just pick them up when we're dead. <laughs> the Spartans were pretty loony, I have to admit. And if you're going to have a, I mean, I know we're the Gyrenes, but if they'd been smart, they would have called themselves the Spartans, because nobody's harder than the Spartans. Right? There's a lot of Spartans in Michigan State and so That being said, let's come back to Euripides. Um, Euripides is an ironist. He's also a psychologist. He likes, like Dostoevsky, the weird, twisted elements in human nature. And I'm sure that he knows these from personal experience. And he leaves his hometown, knows that it's going to be destroyed, and dies before the actual destruction. His parting gift to Athens is the Bacchae. And he says, you know, it was produced the year before Athens gets destroyed. And he says, I want you to think, and he's dead, but he says, look, his son comes out and says, look, my father wants you to think about something before you got destroyed. It's the Bacchae. You've got to watch out for Dionysus um, because he's everywhere. And you probably noticed during the play that uh, whenever you put Dionysus in handcuffs and tie him up and throw him in prison, he slips them and the door opens magically and there you go. It's a lot like trying to thwart your emotions. Here's the deal, you may try and box them up. Good luck with that. Over the long haul, we're just human and Dionysus is divine. Not divine in an attractive way, divine in a powerful way, in the sense that, look, he doesn't say I'm sorry. He doesn't follow much in the way of moral rules. He wants what he wants and intends to be respected. And if you disrespect Dionysus, that's the beginning of the end for you. I like, in particular, the part where Tiresias, the, the, the prophet, and Cadmus come out. They're old men and they're dressed up in these fawn skins and they have a thyrsus and they're half juiced up because everybody that worships Dionysus gets liquored up and uh, they're dancing and they're old men 
And Pentheus says, show some respect. Come on. I mean, don't behave like that. I said, look, son, you don't understand. Remember, Pentheus is a young king, and he thinks he knows what's going on. But the problem is, he does not know himself, and he lacks a sense of proportion. All right, who's going to present these? Somebody? All right, we'll start with, uh, let's see, uh, start with Medea, go to the Trojan women, and then we'll go to the Bacchae at the end. That's my particular Another example of her power of manipulation that 
she's trying to frame this in a way that's sympathetic. And you see that with the course. Like, it works on the course to some extent. They're like, wow, this is really awful, and you should do something about it. But <clears throat> and they also don't want her to do something about it because they're kind of horrified. Um, and so there's a speech right near the beginning. It's within the first 150 lines or so that talks about moderation. And it doesn't explicitly come up again much throughout the play, but the theme is definitely there. Like, what happens when you don't have moderation? Uh, what happens when you take things too far? And that's seen primarily with Jason and Medea. Um, so the story starts out, Jason gets a new bride, because he gives some reasons. He wants more kids, brothers for his other sons, he says. Um, <laughs> like, oh, your wife is gonna love that. Um, and he, he doesn't, like, there's, there's no real sense of what's right there or what's prudent at all because, like, his wife is a witch and she's already killed a whole bunch of people and, you know, getting a new wife is probably going to tick her off, but he doesn't really think that through. Uh, so immediately, Medea's response to this is like, how can I kill her? And she goes through all these different ways that she can kill, uh, what's the wife's name? Uh, anyway, the, the new wife. Um, and she decides eventually on poison because it's like the weapon fit for a woman or something, she says. Um, and then Jason comes in and, and he says, you know, I, I tried to spare you. If only you hadn't cursed the king, you could have stayed, but you brought this on yourself. And, you know, if you take those lines out of context, they could be delivered kindly. But then she responds and, and immediately after that, he's like, wow, I just, I just have to weather this storm of your words. And he has no respect for her. And she doesn't have much respect for him either. Um, they clearly dislike each other a lot. Um, and her response to him is as another great example of manipulation because it's pretty moving. It's like very pitiful, and um, he's not particularly moved by it. And then he, at the end of his speech, is like, you know, the problem with women is that they're too attached to their marriages, and they think that everything is great if their marriage is going great, and your problem is you think everything is terrible because I'm marrying another woman. <laughs> Smart move, dude. But anyway. Um, so then Medea talks Boomer. to... Sorry? Boomer. Yes. <laughs> Prime example of that. Um, so then Medea talks to Aegeus, and I don't know, I was going to ask you factually because she says... Like, she makes this deal with him and kind of manipulates him into taking her, uh, promising her safety. Would that implicitly have protected her kids as well? Or yes, it would, it have, would have. But okay. she's not looking for that. No. Instead, <laughs> Aegeus is in for a problem. See, he's infertile and he can't have children with his wife. So he's gonna, Aegeus is going to put away his wife and marry Medea. Oh, he's going to marry her? Yeah. Oh. And you know who the child is going to be? <laughs> Theseus, the guy who forgot about the sale, isn't that special? <laughs> These people are kind of messed up. <laughs> kind of messed up. Uh, that's a good word. Um, yeah, so she makes this deal with Aegeus. I thought she was just going to help his wife get pregnant. In general, pregnant. you should avoid them. marrying any woman that drives a jag, a dragon. Murders <laughs> <laughs> like children. That's not a good woman. I think she made a passing comment in the beginning. She's like, oh, you know, I hate to do this, but it's like, no, you don't. 
Um, and so this time, there is clearly some remorse, not about killing the princess, but about the consequences for her kids. But she doesn't hesitate at all. It's, she's, she's sad that it has to happen, but she goes ahead with it anyway. Um, and in the beginning, she says, I, I'm doing this to spite Jason. And then she's like, no, 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 I'm doing it to protect my kids. Uh, killing them, that is. Killing the kids to protect them, because if they go into exile, nobody's going to respect them, and they're going to kill them. And, and then she's flying away in the dragon chariot at the end, and she's like, no, no, it's actually just to spite you, Jason. Which is, you know, at least she's honest at the end. Um, but that she is not hiding behind that pretense anymore. She doesn't care about her kids. And I was kind of thinking back to, uh, uh, what was the play we talked about last week? Uh, Antigone. Anyway, Antigone, that's it. I don't know if it's facing on the name. And you were talking about how unnatural it is not to care about your children. And like Medina really doesn't care. And it's kind of terrifying. Um, so then the, the last point I wanted to make is that it's interesting because multiple times throughout the play, different characters reference, and Jason talks about it a lot, the effect of law and the importance of law. And someone says, like, well, you know, you don't need to worry about Jason taking another wife because he'll get justice eventually. Uh, it's like Zeus will bring justice. So it's it's kind of that impression of, like, there, there's justice, but, you know, not really. Um, but Jason says to her, I brought you like the goodness of a civilized society and things like that. So they, they care about that a lot. It's very present in the dialogue. Um, but there's no talk of virtue as virtue. Um, but there is an understanding that people who do bad things corrupt other people, which, you know, makes sense because you have to be pretty blind to miss that. Um, but someone says to Medea after she's plotted all of these things and she's about to act on it, they say, no one will take you, you corrupt everyone around you. So they don't understand like virtue and vice the way that we talk about it, but it, it's implicitly there, and it's like the next step in getting to that point, I would say. Uh, and that's everything that I have. That's a good job. We'll talk a little bit about Medea and before the others. Very good. I can see it's a play you like. I like it too. Euripides for me is a kind of guilty pleasure. I mean, I know I shouldn't like this because it's so twisted, but I do. Um, you know, there are times when watching a Quentin Tarantino movie, you say, like, I should really just turn this off because this is just messing with my brain. And then I watch it anyway. I don't know. All right. A couple of things to think about with Medea. Number one, all right, she is bad. Bad, bad all the time. Right? She comes from, as far as the Greeks are concerned, as far away in the world as you could possibly come. In other words, she comes from the way out back, outland, Colchis, which is on the east coast of the Black Sea. As far as the Greeks are concerned, it might, well, might as well be on Mars. Okay. Now, she's a princess in Colchis, so she's part of the royal family. Jason, leading the Argonauts on the Argo, are there to steal Daddy's Golden Fleece. Now, the Golden Fleece is defended by a large kind of snaky dragon kind of monstrous thing that's awake all the time. And if you go and try and steal the Golden Fleece that's 
lying upon, it will kill you. Now, young Medea, and again, you have to think, again, she's not an adult. Figure she's 13, 14 years old like Antigone. Young, the age of a high school freshman or sophomore, and that level of emotional development, okay? Um, she's got powerful emotions. She's also somehow learned the black arts, so she's a sorceress. It's a great combination for a play. All right. She sees the hero, Jason, and is immediately overwhelmed by his attractiveness. She falls in love with, with Jason. Apparently, this is her first crush, and it's complete, and he's a, he's a heroic guy at the head of a band of, of adventurers, and they're here to get the Golden Fleece. And she, uh, the daddy, I mean, he, Jason wants to ask dad, her, you know, uh, Medea's father, if he'll give up the golden fleece. And he says, no, we don't do that, it's ours. And besides, there's a dragon on it. And uh, she goes to Jason, says, Jason, here's the deal. I'm in love with you and I want to be your wife. Now, Jason, you've got to remember, is a full-grown man. Let's, think he's, let's, let's assume he's in the area of 25. Okay, so he's dealing with this weird young girl. Right. She has a powerful sexual attraction to him that he does not essentially reciprocate. In other words, look, he didn't come here looking for love. He came here looking for the golden fleece. All right. um, he's willing to make a deal with the girl if he gets him the golden fleece, but this is about doing something heroic and being a famous guy. All right. He didn't come here to find some twisted princess, which is what he does find. Okay. Because she's a witch, she gives him a potion, you feed it to the dragon, the dragon goes to sleep. Jason and the guys and the boys grab the golden fleece and they grab Medea, they jump on the boat, they take off. Daddy wakes up, finds the dragon asleep, missing the golden fleece, missing Medea, and missing his son. So the heir apparent and the king's daughter, a princess, have both taken off. Now, this is a gross violation of hospitality. In other words, this is a grossly immoral thing for a Greek to do. I mean, it's, it's in the same league as stealing Helen. All right? This is a, there are some things you should just leave alone, right? regardless of how much you want. Hands off is the smart move. But Jason takes his only way of getting the fleece, jumps on the boat with crazy girl and her brother. Now she's brought the brother because she knows dad is going to be after them with a fleet of ships and when he catches up with them, dad's going to be ticked off. All right? He's going to be mad at her and that won't be good for her. And he's going to kill Jason and she's smitten by Jason. So what do we do? She has her brother as a hostage and then as she sees the fleet come closer and closer, she kills her brother and chops him into pieces and throws the pieces into the Black Sea. Now, she's doing this in such a way that close enough so that her father can see it's her brother, right, and that she's killing him. So dad must be going totally wild. Now, here's the, even though Colchis is a, a barbarous group of people a long way from Greece, even they understand both hospitality and the importance of funeral rites. Right? We've had that theme again and again and again. So 
dad has to decide whether he's going to continue the pursuit or whether he's going to gather up the pieces of his dead son so he can take them back to cultures and give them the rights. But as he does that, right, it slows the, his fleet down again and again and again. And once they're done flinging the boy's body parts into the Black Sea, there's enough distance for them to get away. So Medea comes up with the Golden Fleece and then saves the life of Jason and all the Argonauts, and herself probably. Okay, so here's a woman who has betrayed her father and murdered her brother, driven by sexual desire, something she's not familiar with and doesn't know how to organize or control. So she's tainted and Jason is tainted by association and the entire project is tainted by the fact that you have this woman who has betrayed her family, killed her brother and helped Jason violate the norms of hospitality in a gross and unforgivable way. So this is a heroic journey in that respect, it's in the same genre as the Odyssey. But the idea is that this is one that goes bad, real bad. Goes bad and goes completely south. So now, Jason is getting away and he's got the fleece. And his, um, his soldiers are no doubt looking at him kind of strange. Because this woman just killed her brother. And there's blood and guts and everything on the, the boat. And um, they're thinking, well... Why don't we just unload her? I mean, I'm sure that the soldiers are thinking, this woman is bad news. This woman is dangerous. Right? And this woman knows no moral boundaries. In some ways, she's just pure id, if you know what the Freudian idea of the kind of the primal energies that people have. In other words, they're, they're libido. She's Miss Libido. All right? She wins the prize for Miss Libido that year. Okay. Jason is stuck with her. And, I mean, reading between the lines, again, this is my reading. It's not, it's not in the text, but it's the way I view it. Um, I think Jason is afraid of her. I mean, she killed her own brother. All right. Remember what Clytemnestra did with Agamemnon? Saying, look, we're not even blood relatives. Well, she was blood relatives with her brother, and she chopped him into pieces, which is not a good sign. Okay. So she's the bad seed from the word go. All right, they go back home to Thebes. And she expects to be the queen of Thebes and expects Jason to return to being the king of Thebes. But when Jason left on this journey, his father was king. He was elderly. When they come back... His father has died, and because Jason wasn't around, his uncle, his father's next oldest brother, took the throne. Now, Jason is okay with that. He's a famous hero, right? Uh, Jason and the Argonauts is a well-known Greek myth, and uh, his daring deeds have gotten him that kind of notoriety, which you know he finds attractive because he's a hero. And he says, look, uncle, we don't need to have a civil war over this. You can reign for, you know, look, you're an old man. You reign for a few years, I'll take the job then. It's okay. In other words, 
Jason is a reasonable man who doesn't want to spill blood within the family, which on the whole is a good idea. But little Miss Libido doesn't feel that way. Instead, she wants to be queen and wants to be queen right now. But that means that you have to get rid of the king and you have to make the people of Thebes real, uh, accept the fact that you're a foreign princess who chopped up her brother into pieces and now you're going to be the queen of Thebes. Okay, this is an extremely improbable plot line. So, she tells Jason that she's not satisfied with uh, you know, being a, a queen in waiting. She wants to be queen right now and she also wants to get married. Now, of course, they've had sex. They don't have any of the usual marriage rights. They don't need it because, again, she's Miss Libido. She decides to take matters into her own hand and hands of Thebes. She gathers the, the king, Jason's uncle, gathers his seven daughters together. And she says to them, here's the deal. I'm a witch from Colchis. We know all kinds of black arts and magical stuff. And I know how to make old men young. The daughters naturally say, well, how? Our father's an old man, you know, how does it work? So here's the deal. I have magical fairy dust, all right? It's a kind of herb. And what you need to do is take the man, the old man you want to make young, and kill him and chop him into pieces. Throw him into a big cauldron and boil him up like a stew. And then you throw in the magic fairy dust, and then he pops out a young man ready to be the king of Thebes indefinitely. So the daughters do it. They say, well, you know, this is going to make us princesses indefinitely. This is going to be advantageous for us and our family, and dad will be a young man. He'll thank us. So they kill him. They chop him into pieces. They throw him into a big cauldron of water, and it's bubbling away. And then they get Medea. And she comes. He says, oh, I was just kidding. <laughs> so uh, the uncle has now been killed by his own children. And he's been boiled up into a kind of uncle stew. And uh, Medea says, see, I got over on you. You were stupid enough to think that I could make your father young. In fact, now you've killed him, which means that not only is he no longer the king, but you have blood pollution. You have to leave the city. And that means that Jason is going to be king, and I'm going to be queen, and we're solid. The problem is, the people of Thebes are unimpressed with this. They say, well, you really shouldn't have, you know, brought this blood pollution on our city. It's, not, it's bad enough to kill anybody and kind of stew them, but you really shouldn't do that with your father. That's important. All right? And uh, once we've done that, once they've done that, the Theban people rebel. and They say, yeah, the daughters all have to go into exile because they're, they're polluted, they're unclean. But Medea and Jason, you have to leave here and never come back. We never want to see you again. All right? So now, not only is she homeless, Jason is homeless. And by now they have two children. All right. So they float around. They end up at Corinth, which is where this play happens. Now, Jason, no doubt, is looking for some way to unload Medea. In other words, given her conduct, 
given that she's responsible for his exile from his home country and the blood pollution on his family and all the terrible stuff that she's done, including butchering her own brother, he says, it's, he's thinking, I'm sure, it's only a matter of time before I end up dead. I mean, this woman kills everything she touches. She's a disaster. So, Jason is trying to figure out a way to unload Medea. And he doesn't want, I mean, the blood pollution of killing the mother of his children. He doesn't want to do that. So he says, why don't I just exile her, get rid of her? So he makes a deal with Creon in Corinth, saying, I'd like to marry into the royal family. I'm a famous guy. I've got the golden fleece. And this woman, Medea, she can go. All right. In other words, I'll just pay her off, give her alimony, and then let her take off. Yeah, if the king exiles her, um, she can go wherever she wants. The two boys, the two sons I have by her are going to stay here. They'll be raised in the royal family, and they'll inherit the throne. Now, Creon agrees to this. He also decides, I mean, this is an arranged marriage, remember. So the princess that Jason is supposed to marry, she doesn't really participate in any of the planning of this. She just does what she's told. But Medea is angry. And Medea is jealous. And Medea says, decides that she's going to kill the princess because she's going to marry Jason, not because she's actually done anything wrong. This Again, this is not about moral order. This is about the absence of Okay, so she decides to kill the princess. Now, she got to decide how to do it, so she gives her the poison wedding gown, right, that's gonna burst into flame. It's kind of a good trick. And uh, she says, you know what, I really need to implicate the children in this. It, wouldn't, it just wouldn't be enough if I were to make this present to the princess. Instead, what I'm gonna do is have the boys take this as a wedding present for me. And that way, when the princess dies, all the king's forces are going to be brought down, not just on me and Jason, but also on the children. In other words, everything needs to be destroyed. Again, it's just pure malice and spite that brings the children into this. She didn't have to do that, but she did. Now, once she comes back, this is where she starts saying, you know, I have to protect the children now from the terrible things that are going to happen to them as a result of bringing the poison dress, so I'm going to have to kill them. And then the chorus says, no, don't do that, Medea. Come on. I mean, there's bad, and then there's worse, and then there's this. Please, I mean, don't do this. And Medea, for a while, actually kind of hesitates. She says, you know, I really don't want to kill my own children. Having thought about it, it's not something I really care for. But I can't stand the idea that people laugh at me. If I don't kill them, they'll laugh at me. Jason will think that he got over, and no one gets over on Medea. And she thinks, well, but it will make me the most miserable person in the world to have murdered my own children and fly around in a chariot pulled by dragons. So she says, maybe that's not a good idea. And then she says, maybe they'll laugh at me. So, again, this is feminine hubris. This is arrogance. Nobody laughs at Medea. She's really far out there. 
So, again, this has to be one of the most poignant and disturbing scenes in all of literature, where she goes backstage and the nurse is out there worrying. And then you hear, Mommy, what are you doing with that sword? And then the children die. Okay. Um, in terms of sheer horror, I mean, this is like Friday the 13th. I mean, this is really twisted and bloody and gory and, you know, it's disorienting. This is so messed up. Okay. She comes back out and she rails about Jason and then she makes her exit. Jason goes back, finds that the children are dead and says, where can I find Medea? He's thinking I will kill her. But Medea's way ahead of him. She's already done some sort of magic to conjure up dragons and a, and a, 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 and a chariot. And she's going to circle around and laugh at him while he is miserable. Now, remember that we had to slice in that little experience with King Aegeus. King Aegeus has come to Corinth, where he doesn't belong. And he, he's asked Medea, how can I have children because it seems that I and my wife are infertile. She says, I'll guarantee you that you father children. But you got to let me settle in Athens no matter what I do. Now immediately when you hear no matter what I do and Medea's telling you that, you know this is going to turn out really badly. But Aegeus is dumb and he says yes. Now this is a very awkward way of finding her an exit. And Aristotle himself, in his book The Poetics, which is a written account of tragedy and how they work, he says, this is the big flaw in Medea. You got this little scene with Aegeus who doesn't belong there, and it just serves as a way of getting, at, of getting her out of Corinth. All right. She kills her children, and will not even let Jason bury them. She has them in the cart of the flying chariot, and she laughs madly and flies away. She's going to Athens. I don't know what she does with the children. But she, she's eventually going to marry Aegeus. He's the guy who gives his name to the Aegean Sea. And if you remember that their only child is Theseus, who we met in an earlier so everything she touches dies. Everything she comes near is worse off for it. She is a horrifyingly self-destructive individual, but in the process of being self-destructive, and this is true of a lot of self-destructive people, they're going to bring down a lot of other people at the same time. I mean, we are... When self-destruction is singular rather than plural, you are actually getting a lucky break. So Medea has something like the rage of Achilles. The problem is she doesn't have the body of Achilles, so she's not able to slaughter everyone, at least not directly. Rather, she does it using the black arts. But her rage is in the same league, uh, same league as Achilles. You can't reason with it. Right? She is unrestrained passion. Rage, lust, hate, malice. She's a real piece of work. 
She has betrayed her husband. She has killed her children. She has betrayed her father. She has killed her brother. She is about to cause the destruction of Aegeus with whom she made a deal so as to get an escape. So what's the justice of this? Nothing. There's no justice in it. There's no moral order to it. There's just bad and worse. And then, like Helen of Troy, Medea is not going to suffer the consequences of her conduct. Now, it's not that Jason was a nice guy. Jason was a hero who wasn't going to let the well-being of some, of some girl right, determine whether his mission was going to be a success or not. Jason wanted the Golden Fleece. He figured that he wouldn't have any problem with a girl of that age, but it turns out she's a very different kind of girl. And even Jason is scared of her. And uh, again, Euripides lays on the irony pretty thick when uh, Creon comes to her and says, you gotta go, you're, you're bad news, you gotta go. And she says, couldn't I just stay one more day so I can destroy your family and everything? And oh, he says, well, okay, I know it's wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway because this is a Greek tragedy. There we go. And what kind of conclusion do we get? No moral order gets restored. There's just crazy woman with bodies of her dead children flying around on a chariot. And then she goes to Athens. So she feeds into the myth of Aegeus. Yes? Do we know how old her children are? Um, They couldn't be more than uh, primary school age. So, I mean, you know, five or six, you know, four to seven, something like that. So these are children who would be the objects of anybody's pity, much less their parents. And she says, you know, her unwillingness to be laughed at her arrogance is such that she's willing to kill her children to get back at Jason. In other words, this is the power of rage and revenge. There are no winners in this play. Everybody loses. This is a negative-sum game. Now that's a tragedy. I mean, you've got to admit, this is pretty moving. I mean, it can't help but mess with your emotions. You know, particularly when you hear uh, the nurse saying, please, don't kill your children. Well, I understand that you're angry, but don't kill the children because they haven't done anything. Medea says, well, they haven't done anything. You're right, but people may laugh at me. Beginning of the end. So, she's a genuinely awful human being. right? And uh, this is the kind of myth that young Athenians get raised on. Mm-mm-mm. We like Oedipus better. How about the Agamemnon? Right. How about, I mean, in other words, wherever you look, you just go, wow. Um, This is uh, a weird psychological kind of drama. And this seems to focus on the most irrational and powerful and dangerous of human emotions. Yeah. So you said that, like, Helen is considered, like, the worst woman. Yeah. Ah, because Helen gets a lot more people killed and gets an entire city destroyed. Yeah, killing your children is okay. I mean, you know, that's bad. But uh, she was the face that launched a thousand ships. How many men got killed for no reason, both Greek and Trojan? And then all the Trojan people get annihilated. The entire city gets destroyed. And this didn't have to happen. 
I mean, she was the queen back at home, and she chose to leave because of Paris. Again, failure to restrain libido. All right, All right. yeah. That's right. Oh, oh, it's because um, women are viewed as being more emotional and thus less rational. That's part of it. That's number one. Number two, um, women were thought to be were thought to, by the, at least by the Greeks to have a greater sex drive than men. I know it sounds strange, but it's true. Um, for them, the point was not to have lots of concubines. For them, the point was to have an excellent child. Healthy, in other words, fertility is the big thing that's driving women with regard to sex. It's not pleasure, it's not status, it's the idea of being able to reproduce and create new life. So, um, Tiresias, for example, there's an old myth about him. Remember, he's the blind seer? All right? Tiresias was said to have been changed from a man to a woman and back again by one of the gods so that he could report his opinions on the sexes and the, and the differences in their psyche. And Teresia says, women like sex 10 times more than men. Now, unless you actually have flipped from one sex to the other, which nowadays seems possible, that back then it was an aberration, now it's just a lifestyle. Um, Teresia reports what, Greeks, what the Greek men believed to begin with, which is that women are less rational, less able to control their, their desires than men are. Women were associated with nature, men with culture. Men with nomos, women with phusis. All right. uh, unrestrained sexual desire for a man wasn't a problem. The reason why, and this is particularly for royal families, um, it doesn't matter how many illegitimate children the king sires. All right. On the other hand, if the queen has been behaving like Clytemnestra rather than like Penelope, there's the chance that she will become pregnant and that either the king will not be the legitimate father or we won't know who the legitimate father is. If that's the case, you have civil war. So my sense is, I don't know this for certain, but I think it's probable that the, uh, the double standard for the sexual activity of men and women goes back to legitimacy of royal lines. I don't think that chastity was a big deal for common women right, or for slaves. Whereas for queens, it's everything because they have to produce the next heir. Right. So I think that's a big, uh, what does it say? Possession is nine-tenths the law. Well, women possess the child. And that's the determining factor for the Greeks in deciding how to uh, properly conduct oneself. All right. Who's going to do the next one? Who's going to do it? All right. Give us the Trojan women. Okay, yeah. So um, I have the Trojan woman, and basically this is just the aftermath of the Trojan War, which we went over. Um, it does not really set out to tell a story, unlike the other two plays. Um, 
and like there is no conclusion or moral to the story. Uh, it was written in 14, 415 BC and more just portrays the contemporary relevance of the time. Um, and this is performed, uh, happened three months after the Melian Dialogue and right before Sicily. So I think what uh, Euripides is trying to portray was just the brutality and the realness of war. Um, this play is also mainly about the fates of these Trojan women and shows how the fates change with like the desires of the gods based on their emotions, like sort of like the Greek hero 1.0 with Achilles, um, where actions are just based off emotions. So therefore, if gods are unpredictable, uh, then these women's fates is also unpredictable as well. Um, so, so the beginning conversation with Poseidon and Athena, uh, she wanted the Greeks to win, but now um, in, the, in the beginning of the discussion, uh, he, she asked Poseidon for a favor um, to ruin their trip home. And uh, she says, would not my former enemies try to rejoice in their voyage home, the Greeks home the Greeks were met with a disaster and he replies that this change of heart is hard to understand and she replies how Ajax actually uh, he got blessed um, with the victory of war but since she defiled Athena's temple uh, she kind of changed the fate all around and that's why Poseidon was confused with the changing faith right away there um, and he replies that yeah okay so uh, oh yeah and then she says the Greeks must learn to hold the gods in awe and reverence their shrines and Poseidon grants her wish. So this shows how the gods are still unpredictable here, like we saw in the expl explanation of the Iliad, and um, how then everything can be justified, um, because if the gods are messing up and changing their fate, then humans can just blame it on the gods in that case. Um, and then I'll just talk uh, about the, the women mainly. Um, Hecuba, the first one, she's the wife of Priam, and in particular, uh, she, her, her losses are the worst because she was the queen of such a great empire are such a great like civilization and um she loses everything and she uh she was the wife of prime and lost all 50 of her sons and um she starts off by saying what greater grief could a woman bear she lost her country her husband and uh, right away Euripides just creates this feeling of empathy for her um and then she right away she despise she blames it on Helen and despises her um and says she is the main cause of prime's death um and then the chorus chimes in and talks about the fate of the gods and that the gods have cursed them and how they are uh, to be raped and sold into slavery. But then they see uh, some hope that they might be brought um, to Great Athens or even Sicily. And uh, it seems too wishful and, like, not a reality. Um, her fate was to go to, with Odysseus, and she was very against this. She said she would rather die than be his slave. Um, and, she, a quote, she says... Uh, She'd rather be a slave, impious, vile, unnatural beast whose lying tongue twists every right and wrong. And um, this is ironic because here we see Odysseus as like a bad guy and like lying and all that. But um, in the Odyssey, we see how his wits and his, his uh, ability to speak is actually heroic. So it's a weird contradiction there. Um, and through, however, through all of her self-pity, she does show some signs of hope. Um, but I only noticed that when she was talking towards the other women um, to try to get them to feel better about them going to be, become slaves. Um, and her main role is just like kind of a mediator um, between the Greeks to try to convince them to ha like give less of a pen penalty as a slave. Um, the next is Cassandra. Uh, she's a daughter of Hecuba. Um, 
And her situation is different because she knows her fate, unlike the other women, because of the prophecy and her abilities there. Um, and I saw a similar connection, like we talked about in the end of Antigone, how her bridal bed was a gravesite next to her brother, um, Polynesia's, in that, um, in that weirdly, like, weird brotherly love. And uh, similarly, Cassandra's mother, um, Hecuba, says on page 17, my poor Cassandra, I had, I had such high hopes. Little did I think that swords and spears would escort you to your bridal bed. And, like, obviously a normal bridal bed is, like, a consecration and marriage. And uh, her, uh, and here again, Cassandra's is death. So I saw that weird connection like we saw in it um, in the earlier play. Um, and I thought her, her monologues is one of the best in play when her response um, to her mother, she says, Mother, be glad for me. And she is perfectly content because she knows her fate and she knows that when Agamemnon comes back, um, the whole house uh, of Atreus is destined to fall because of the prophecy. So she is more than willing to um, accept her fate, like how Orestes kills Clytemnestra and Aegisthus and um, Agamemnon also dies. So she's more willing to accept her fate and she's not as worried about that because she knows something good will come out of it. And she actually says, don't weep for Troy. The men died a glorious death protecting, um, protecting their home city and Hector died righteously and same with Paris. And it's such an honorable thing that they did not run for war. And actually the uh, the Greeks, if anything, the Greeks who attacked lost too because they're away for 10 years. They left their families. Their wives were widows. Um, and they lost many men too. And also the fact that some of them are going to have to come home another 10 years. Um, so she says, actually, don't weep for Troy. Um, and then she criticizes the, her- the Herald. Um, and she says nobody likes messengers like him. And they're basically the scum of society. Um, and then she goes on to predict Odysseus's long journey home with the Cyclops and the cattle, and obviously that becomes true as we see in the uh, Odyssey. Um, and then she says her final goodbyes and says, uh, "I will come as a hero, leaving behind the house of Atreus." And then the next woman is Andromache. Um, her fate uh, was uh, shown through the drawing of the lots, as she was to go to Achilles' son. Um, and she sees that the gods hate the Trojan. She just sees that the gods hate the Trojan. And um, with her, this is the first time that I noticed somebody blaming Paris for the fall of Troy rather than Helen. And um, she even says that, that God, the gods hate us and Paris was born to turn his sisters into slaves. And she would rather die than to be a slave uh, to the men that killed her husband. And um, she says she would rather be dead because uh, she would not have to experience all this pain and pity and evil. Um, And it was even worse for her, yeah, because she had such an honor being Hector's wife, and she worked hard to keep a good reputation. Now she's basically nothing. And on top of this, also, she, um, her son Astynx, uh, who was her, yeah, um, who was just a little boy, the Greeks contend him to death because she was worried that because they were worried that he would take revenge on them eventually. So on top of all that, she lost her son and basically lost everything. And she tries to plead for them to um, not kill their son, but he does anyway. And then she proceeds to curse Helen because uh, who else could she take her anger out on now that she tried to, she took it out on the Greeks for killing their son. So then she blames Helen like everybody else does. And uh, the chorus is important in this too because they're the, the other group of captured women, like the slaves, and um, they're just the ones like, that are telling the bad things that happen. And uh, they're constantly worried about their uh, fate too. And basically they just like, explain like all the bad things that happen um, and lastly that Helen uh, she gives her defense why she should be spared to Menelaus and she is very evil and convincing and she comes at Hecuba 
and she says the fault is, is hers because she wants to put the blame on everybody else so she can live. And um, she says it's her fault because she actually gave birth to Paris and Priam knew all along that he should have killed Paris because of the prophecy. And uh, since he chose not to kill him, all of this happened um, because, of, because of Paris. Um, and she also puts the blame on the gods too and says it's, it's their fault that she married Paris um, and also Paris's fault because uh, he chose Aphrodite, which gave him uh, Helen. And, um, and like we saw in the Iliad, when you blame things on the gods because they're unpredictable, morality just completely becomes screwed because every evil act can just have a justification. And um, this is the same kind of thing that which we saw in Oedipus, where he claimed that there was nothing he could do about his fate, so he is basically innocent, and she's making the same claim here. And this brings up the question of whether it's the intent or action that's actually bad that we talk about. And can one really be blamed if they're cursed? And it's not really their fault because they're just cursed. And um, I think the long monologues between her and Hecuba and Helen um, are really great because they both seem very convincing when they speak. Um, but after Helen came at Hecuba, she basically said, you, look, you need to kill her now because uh, if you don't, then her beauty is going to um, convince uh, Agamemnon to keep her. And she say that women, she basically says how evil of a woman she, she is and how she's such a traitor. And women who portray their husbands must die. And um, Helen pleads last, one last time not to blame her for what the gods have done. Now both Hecuba and the chorus say they need to stone her. And, um, but uh, Agamemnon, or Menelaus takes her back to the, uh, or was it Agamemnon? They take her back to the ship. And then the play just concludes with the death of uh, Asenix and Hecuba basically stripped down to nothing. And she says how the Greeks are uh, so cowardly to kill a child who has done nothing um, just because they're worried about him uh, taking revenge in the future. And um, like I said earlier, it's also weird when we read these play, well, at least for me, like um, I am sympathizing with Troy um, now in this play. And I like, I would hate this to people like in a, uh, like Odysseus and Achilles. But when I read, like, when we read the Iliad and the uh, Odyssey, we actually sympathize with those people. But now you see the other side in the Trojan women, and you're like, oh, wow, which one is actually right? Um, and uh, this is, it, even though there's a lot of, like, the uh, things that we saw in uh, regular um, Greek playwright, like in the Iliad, like Hubris and Kudos, this is uh, more of a Greek tragedy um, where we see it's mainly based off fate and then madness, too. Um, and nemesis with the opponents between um, the women and the, how they're going to be slaves to the other men. Okay, that's a good presentation. You got to work on talking rather than reading, but you, you did very thorough. Good okay. Uh, this is a pretty easy play to go through because it doesn't really have much of a plot. It's just one awful thing after another. Right. And each of the the early events, uh, they're not the cause of the later events, just one thing after another because everybody knows the story. Now this is Euripides' indictment of Athens. This is three months after the Melian Dialogue. Now the Melian Dialogue is what you would expect of a culture in which young men are brought up and educated using the Homeric poems. In other words, if your idea of what a good man is, is Achilles or Odysseus, then there's no reason why you should show any quarter to the Melians. Big fish eat little fish. 
hawks eat sparrows. So, in the Melian dialogue, the Athenians are pitiless. They won't be moved by emotion or morality. They are strong, and they believe that that makes them right. Remember what Thrasymachus will say later on, justice is the advantage of the stronger. This is basically that idea. Now, in the, as you said, in the Homeric poems, it's hard not to side with the great Greek heroes because they're actually the heroes, the, you know, the winners of the conflict, and uh, is produced by their culture to symbolize uh, certain military values. What Euripides is saying is, have you, any of you thought about the opposite side of that? In other words, for every, hand, for every hammer, there's always an anvil. What's it like to be on the losing side of heroism? Matter of fact, the majority of the people in society are not soldiers. Old people, women, children. They are all what we call nowadays in military lingo collateral damage. And in the Iliad, when it ends, right, not, not when it ends with the uh, with the uh, funeral of Hector, but the flashback where we find out that it was the Trojan horse and that uh, when, they, uh, when, when Odysseus tells the story of the fall of Troy, um, he says that Astanax was killed and all the women were raped and all the, men were so, all the children were sold into slavery. Okay, if you educate young people with the idea that that is morally proper, with the idea that pitiless violence is a mark of human excellence or virtue, what the Greeks called arete, well, you're going to raise, you're going to reap what you sowed. This is the center and very important part of Plato's critique of Homer and of tragedy and of comedy. It says, look, if you raise kids on the idea that Achilles is what you should try and be. Um, the problem is they're going to incorporate Achilles' defects as much as his military qualities. And even Odysseus, he's another exemplar of what we want young men to be, but he's morally dubious too. Right? He's not as dumb as Achilles, but many of the decisions he makes are simply pitiless violence. Remember when they leave Troy and the first thing they do is sack a city that they're not at war with? Why do it? Because it was there. Right? So the point is, education is, or rather art, is educative, and education is the ultimate political issue. Right? That's why... Uh, we're, we're very careful about what we expose children to. The Greeks were not. All right. So, um, sex and violence, 
evil conduct, all kinds of negative emotions and pathological states of mind are celebrated in Homer and also in the Greek tragedies. Now remember that everybody in the audience already knows the stories behind these. So Greek mythology is used to show the young people how to conduct themselves and what qualities to develop. And if you choose those exemplars badly, you will end up with equally bad children. So there's an argument to make that the Melian dialogue is derived from the idea of the Homeric hero when it's been made insolent and arrogant by sophistry. Euripides' home in Athens, when this decision gets made and when they come back and say, we need 500 Athenians to populate Milos, there's nobody there anymore. We've killed everybody. And then whoever was left, we sold them into slavery. Well, here's the problem. What goes around comes around. If you show no pity to other people, you will live in a pitiless world. And Euripides is quite right about that. He said the world has certain properties, but is also, to some extent, the world is what you make it. If you show no mercy to others, others will show no mercy to you. Homer makes you think that the destruction of Troy was really glorious and everybody got fame and glory and praise and stuff. So had you thought about what that was like to be those women who were moved from being royalty to being slaves? Mass murder of all the men, mass rape of all the women, and then the children, the ones that, were, that survive, are going to be sold into slavery except for the royal children like Astanax who are going to be carried up to the walls of Troy and thrown down, about 50 feet maybe. What kind of a sound does a toddler make when they hit the ground from 50 feet? Kind of like a wet, like a, an axe hitting a wet log? A thump? I mean, something really gruesome and horrifying. But Homer never dwells on that. Euripides says, I want to talk to you about that, that stuff that Homer doesn't talk about. Because Homer has been lying to you. Homer has told you that unrestrained violence and extraordinary libido, irrational desire, Homer's told you that that's really good and that that's what an excellent man does. Well, you learned from Homer and now you've become pitiless violent destroyers of entire societies. And you think that's really great. You actually have the nerve to boast about how you're the beloved of the gods because justice is the advantage of the stronger. You can sacrifice some of the booty that you got and still annihilate an entire society. 
Well, here's the deal. What goes, what goes around comes around. Do not be surprised if your opponents treat you with an equal pitilessness. Nothing human lasts forever. Everything that has a beginning has an end. The Athenian Empire had a beginning in the aftermath of the Persian Wars. The Athenian Empire, if you ask Pericles, is the greatest thing that's ever been created. And there's no reason why we shouldn't go from victory to victory, glory to glory, because we're the greatest society that's ever existed. Right. You can see how, in the ancient Greco-Roman view of the world, there was a violence and a rage and an irrationality, which is eventually going to require an antidote. And that antidote is called Christianity. The Roman Empire created an enormous reservoir of human misery because people got conquered and then enslaved and then treated like animals, worse than animals. If you create enough misery and a religion comes along which offers to address your misery, to redress your grievances and offer you something in the afterlife, that's going to catch fire. And what they're going to use as fuel is this tremendous reservoir of human misery. Right. So the Greco-Roman tradition of heroism is heroic in its violence and in its lack of proportion and it's in its refusal to see mercy as a virtue. They preferred ruthlessness. And it is a pretty ruthless thing to do to kill a five-year-old. On the other hand, if Medea could do it, why not the Athenian soldiers at Milos? So what he's saying is, this is one of the great anti-war plays that's ever been written. He says, think about what happens as a result of your conquest. Yeah, those of you that survive get a whole bunch of great stuff, and people write stories about you and create poems about you and flatter you and tell you how great you are. On the other hand, the other half of the story, the story of the losers and the vanquished, that's not, not nearly so exciting. And unless you have an absolute heart of stone, you can't help but feel sorry for these people. And even worse, Helen of Troy gets off. So there's no justice in this, yeah. Actually, it seemed like he was saying that Helen wasn't, was going to not get off, that she was actually going to get justice. Yeah, it seems like that, but uh, I think it's Hecuba that says, no, he's going to get off. I know how men are. And indeed, she does. The old, wise old queen knows the score. All right? And when she says, you, are the, Helen, are the cause of this, um, she's right. Yeah. Unredeemed suffering, suffering that doesn't 
give you any advantage. Like, I, I learned not to do that again. Uh, this is an irrevocable mistake, which is what tragedy is about. And that means that, look, once Troy is destroyed and all the men have been killed, well, the women are raped, the women are, are sold into slavery, and then there just aren't any more Trojans. All right? And if we're going to do that, look to it. Sooner or later, all right, what goes around comes around. And you too will be on the wrong end of the sword and the spear someday. And remember that I, Euripides, told you this. And that your arrogance and your hubris, your cruelty and your violence will be the end of you. This, no wonder he wasn't popular. No wonder he didn't win as many prizes as Sophocles or Aeschylus. Here he's just having Athens saying, I'm disgusted by you and I know where this leads. All right. You think you're going to get away with this indefinitely? Yeah, everybody who ultimately loses thinks that. Nobody's luck holds out forever. Power comes and power goes. So this is actually a, a really, I mean, uh, I heard that this was put on in uh, the Balkans after the uh, ethnic cleansing there and the terrible internal civil wars they had. And it meant the same thing in the Balkans in the early 21st century that it did 25 centuries ago. All right. Um, you young bucks full of testosterone have decided that you're going to go to war. Well, think about the fact that you all have families, and your family is going to pay the price for this, if not now, later. Ultimately, war has no winners. And i got to admit, I think Euripides has the better of this, despite the fact he's a twisted individual. He's right. It's a very powerful book. And what it is, because he's contemporary of Socrates, he's turning his back on the Homeric tradition, saying, I reject this. I won't participate in this. I want to educate you in a different way. An interesting argument. All right, who's got the final one? Oh, go ahead. So here we're going to be finishing up tragedy. And tragedy is one of the great achievements of Periclean Golden Age Athens. And it is the new art form characteristic of science 2.0. All right. Yeah. So, who is, uh, how old was Asinix? Like, was he like three, four, five? Oh, okay. So he wasn't like an infant. Like as a kid. Right. Right. I remember that when we saw him in that book six of the Iliad, where he was scared of his father. So he's a toddler. Yeah. All right. So by now the war's over. Figure it's, it's he's four or five years old. Okay. All right. And the kind of heroes that are great fighters are also willing to kill children. Yeah. What's the connection between I uh, demythologizing the world and tragedy? Oh wait, I just answered my question. It's all these tragedies are demythologizing the world. Well, no, it's a question of degree. It's not that we uh, that the Tragedians are atheists, although it may well be that Euripides is one. I don't know. I mean, he was educated by sophists. So, and, you know, if you followed Anaxagoras or uh, uh, the other guy on the board, I forget his name. Yeah, this Protagoras, right. Um, what you'll end up with is religious skepticism. But although he is skeptical about religion, 
Um, he is not skeptical about morality. He's rather a humanistic thinker. He says, look, I can employ images of the gods as necessary because I'm trying to communicate with the Athenian people, but it doesn't re require that he be himself religiously devout, Euripides. The other two, I think, are religious, but they're trying to adopt their myths or adapt their myths to the new intellectual circumstance. That's why the, the Aristia ends the way it does. Um, Aeschylus is a, is a pious man, but he says, look, on the other hand, not only am I pious, I'm also patriotic, and we Athenians have had a good idea. It's called the rule of law, and I'm going to advocate for that in the Aristia. All right, go to work and finish up the last of Euripides, the Baha, my favorite. Pentheus seems to stand for rationality, but really he is the irrational one. And we learn that from what Tiresias is saying. You know, it's always going to be great when Tiresias is telling you that you need to get your head straight. So Dionysus has set up his, uh, in his opening monologue, he tells us that he's, uh, he's arrived and he's here to bring his worship. And uh, that people have been telling lies, Cadmus and his people have been telling lies about his birth and his origin. So Cadmus, the old king, and Tiresias are getting ready to party, as we mentioned. And Tiresias uh, says that this worship supersedes logic. I, I have it here. Um, we do not practice subtleties towards the powers, inherited traditions, oldest time itself. We have in keeping 
these no logic overthrows, no, not the wisdom of the highest intellect. So even Tiresias is saying, it's time to go crazy. And Pentheus comes out and says, you old men are making fools of yourselves. What's the reason for it? And Tiresias, who's really our poster boy for sanity, says sometimes, this is kind of at the heart of the way, the only sane thing to do is just go crazy. Can't keep the irrational down. Uh, so there's sort of a, an irony here, uh, though not of the sort we've already discussed tonight, which is that the case for irrationality has to be a rational one in order to appeal to an audience or to anybody reading this. Euripides is making a reasoned argument in favor of letting it loose sometimes. So Pentheus, of course, is our tragic hero, so he has to be hubristic, and Tiresias tells him as much. He says, you're on an eco trip. Uh, you're all happy when people are shouting your name and now they're shouting Dionysus' name, and you don't like that. This is about ego. He says, no, it's about reason. You all are going crazy. Well, Pentheus is wrong. He's deluded himself. We've seen that before. We'll see it again. Uh, so Tiresias calls him out on it, and he doesn't listen, so it's not going to end well. Uh, Pentheus has Dionysus brought before him. He, he, he right away starts saying, wow, you don't look very athletic. Your hair is not exactly cut out for wrestling. You're some kind of ladies man. He, uh, he invokes Aphrodite. He says, you're sort of trying to cut in on Aphrodite's thing, aren't you? Corrupting the women and all this stuff. Which comes up a lot in what Pentheus talks about. Like, that's a pretty common theme as he's concerned with uh, uh, the sexual morality in the city. So that's something to, to take note of. Um, but there's every scene where Pentheus and Dionysus are uh, talking, I notice there's, it's just driven clarity because Pentheus doesn't know what's going on, and Dionysus does. By the time, uh, actually, before I get to that, I thought it was funny that when Dionysus is explaining, no, he didn't capture me. He didn't put me in chains. He was so crazy, he tied up a bullet, and he couldn't see it. He chained up a bull. Um, so he's, he's playing with Pentheus. Right? Everything's gone to hell. Pentheus is finally going to double down on his hubris. He says, let's get everybody together. Let's get all our soldiers that's when Dionysus pulls out all the stops, and uh, it, there's a footnote in here implying that there's some sort of hypnosis, but regardless, Pentheus just sort of starts to go along with whatever Dionysus is saying, and it's time for him to be royally humiliated. So he's brought out women's clothing to where the Maenads are partying, uh, to where they're, they're going crazy, they're tearing up the countryside, they're impenetrable, the arrows that the, uh, the locals are shooting at them are just not doing anything. Uh, and so Agave, Wild insanity ends up killing Pentheus, um, which is really grisly um, and, and very uh, grotesquely described. So Pentheus is killed by Agave, and what we're left with is her final realization oh shoot, I went crazy, I went along with the whole deal, and now something worse has happened to me than it happened to Pentheus because he's dead, but I killed him. That sort of leads us to this question of who is Dionysus really punishing here? He basically says, you all should not have told lies about me. God on my bad side, don't mess with the gods, because you're not going to win. Uh, and he says, too little, too late. Uh, right, right at the, uh, the very end, uh, he says, receive our worship, Dionysus, we have done you wrong. He says, too late you know me, when you ought, you would not learn. If you wait for this stuff, it's just... Yeah, this is the reason to case for 
unreasonable. Okay, that's an interesting take. I like that. Uh, look, here's the deal. Dionysus lives. Not just back then, now. Right? And you all have a portion of this in you, like it or not. It's the human condition. Look, we all have irrational impulses. We all have emotions. All right? Um, you can organize your emotions, and you can modify your emotions, but you can't get rid of them. That's just a fact. And if you attempt to overcome your emotional side with brute force, you will fail. So in other words, a rational human being does not undertake the rational activity, the irrational activity of trying to abolish libido, desire, impulse. All right? It's not possible for us to be Dr. Spock on Star Trek. And just as well. Okay. What that means then is that we are partially rational creatures, imperfectly rational creatures, intermittently rational creatures. All right? Um, if any of you have ever fallen in love, right, that was not done on any rational basis, you didn't do a cost benefit analysis, yeah, this is a good idea. Right? Instead, you, you and your roommates and your friends will find not only do people fall in love uh, close to indiscriminately, but that it's often the case that people fall in love with the wrong person. Every one of you, either you or one of your friends, has fallen in love with the wrong person. I went to college. You don't look at me like, no, no, yes, yes, yes. You know perfectly well what I'm talking about. Every one of the guys or any one of the, every one of the girls back at the door saying, no, no, no. And she's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Welcome to Dionysus. You fall in love, Dionysus has come to town. You have a desire for alcohol or drugs, Dionysus has come to town. You want to accumulate a great deal of wealth, it's just another flavor of Dionysus. All right. um, we have emotions, we have appetites, and the best we can hope to do is to organize them. That's essentially what a, what a psychiatrist does. Helps you organize your feelings. Right. And the, one of the worst things that's happening to you is to have disorganized feelings. To have feelings that you don't control, understand, or restrain. The result of that is disastrous. But not giving your emotions their due is equally dangerous. Right. So what we, have to, what we have to do is know ourselves and we have to have nothing in excess. And knowing yourself means that you're not a purely rational construction. And nothing to excess means not trying to annihilate your feelings because you'll fail. Right. It doesn't mean that your feelings are in control of all your decisions. It means that your feelings, your sentiments, are a given. You don't have to ask for them. They show up on their own. Right? And when Dionysus comes to town, the smart thing to do is to show 
a decent, prudent respect for Dionysus like the old men did. You know, the Theresius and Cadmus are grandfathers, right? And they say, yeah, we feel stupid holding a thyrsus, which is a phallic symbol, and getting dressed up in fawn skin and putting leaves in our hair and dancing around. Yeah, we feel like idiots too. The problem is, this is far less idiotic than saying, I'm going to arrest Dionysus. The hell you are. All right? Every time Dionysus gets arrested, the bonds simply fall off him. The door to the jail opens of its own accord. Good luck in exiling your emotions if you find them inconvenient. Um, both convenient and inconvenient emotions are here to stay. Everyone at some time or another in their life is a fool for love. And not just love. Think of a frat party. Precious little love, but a lot of intoxication. A lot of crazy guys cranked up on testosterone and booze. Okay, well this is gonna have a bad end. You can see there's gonna be problems with that. That's why they do the best to restrain it here. It's a good idea. But although you can restrain it, nobody, particularly in the administration, should make the mistake of thinking they've abolished it. No, 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 no. that doesn't happen. All right? So we restrain our feelings. We try and organize our feelings. And we do so imperfectly. And the result of that is that we are sometimes driven to do things that we are not able to control. When you have fallen in love, if you have, all right, um, you have only the most precarious control over this, all right? Um, You may not want to, but Dionysus hasn't asked you what you want. Dionysus says you will, and then you will. All right? So the point is, the Greeks had underestimated, the Athenians had underestimated the significance of the irrational. That's why they created the god Dionysus. Yeah, he comes from the east. He starts out as a vegetation god, and he's associated with springtime and fertility because he's associated with sexual desire, right? The word tragedy comes from two words, tragodia, means goat song. Goats are symbols of sexual fertility and abundance. So tragedy is about desire, fertility, irrationality, spectacle. That's why we have these tremendous tragedies and a set of comedies as well every springtime when we have the festival of Dionysus. Dionysus is the god of drunkenness. Dionysus is the god of sexual impulse. He is also the god of comedy and tragedy. So what the Athenians are doing here, because they're so rational, is organizing a religious festival in which they show the proper respect to Dionysus by getting drunk and having sex. Now, that may strike you as just an excuse, but if they did not have uh, a festival of Dionysus, they would still get, get drunk and have sex. That wouldn't have changed. The point is, you want the Greeks or the Athenians want to incorporate this 
this idea of Dionysus, this idea of the irrational, into their largely rational self-conceptions. Right? So, since tragedy is always about hubris, about going too far and getting yourself destroyed, which is an irrational impulse no matter how you look at it, it's not an accident that we, sh we create spectacles where we, that, where we can view that kind of action and get a catharsis, as Aristotle says, for our feelings of pity and fear. And when you, when you, say, uh, when you see the Bacchae, and you see Pentheus brought in, they're just pieces of him, and Agave's torn him up and all. Um, the idea is that the audience is gonna have a good cry. You ever, I mean, there are some people that like those real tearjerker movies, a lot of rom-coms are, but um, there's something cathartic that people feel as a result of crying at the movies. Well, what the Greeks were doing in the audience for these tragedies is something very much like that. They feel pity and fear, and they weep because of Oedipus, or because of Medea, or because of Agamemnon. And they say how horrible, and they face how horrible and terrifying and immoral the human condition can be. Right? What they're trying to do is get a catharsis of these emotions so they can go back to being rational again. Right? Yeah? Would, would most of the time they think that those playwrights were like real stories, or no? Um, Depends on how you want to, how you want to gloss the word real. Yeah. Okay. Um, if you can figure out what you mean by real, I can answer your question. Like, tr like just how we see in movies, they're like based on a true story or something like that. Yeah. Like, okay. They... Well, we touch and go with true too. Um, <laughs> uh, they thought that these were stories that were wise. Some of them took them to be literally true, some of them didn't. Some of them took them as to be symbolic. Yeah. Right? You could take it either way. The smarter you are, the more likely you are to see them as allegories or something. Right? On the other hand, I'm sure that there were plenty of illiterate, undeveloped psyches in the audience saying, wow, that's really awful. Got to watch out for those princesses from culture. Right? So again, you got to remember that the audience here is very heterogeneous. There are some really sophisticated thinkers. There are others that um, like to get drunk and brawl. You're going to have all kinds there. Right? But what, what the tragedians were doing were tapping into all right, the culture of Athens and commenting on it. And remember that this is 405. This is the year before the Peloponnesian War ends and they get destroyed by the Spartans. So everybody in the audience knows that the end is very near. There's no place to go, you can't get away now. This is uh, posthumously produced because, it, uh, because Euripides died in 406, but he says, I have one more thing to tell you before you all die, and that is, you're not as rational as you think you are. Pentheus, our rational young man, does not know himself, and he goes beyond the proper measure. And so did you, Athenians. I tried to tell you back at the Melian dialogue that all good things have to end, and now you've succeeded in destroying yourself in a war you didn't have to fight, 
that you could have honorably ended. But your arrogance got the better of you. Go read Pericles' funeral oration and find out how great you are. Well, here's the deal. You're going to find out how great you are next year when these Spartans come over the wall. Now, here's the deal. Flattering yourself with the idea that you are rational all right, is an exercise in self-deception. You may occasionally be rational. Mathematics tests or filling out your IRS forms. You better be rational there because they won't take any irrationality from you. But if you think that you're going to conduct your life in a rational way, you're kidding yourself. You, like everybody else, have both rational and irrational elements to your psyche. And it is necessary for you to recognize the existence of Dionysus if you're going to know yourself. So Dionysus, the god of impulse, drunkenness, sex, and violence, and craziness, um, he has his place in the psyche as well. And your job is to find some rational way of coping with that. And trying to make him go away, or trying to make your emotions di uh, uh, behave and, and obey you, that's ultimately not going to work. So Pentheus is going to be our rational guy. He's a young man, he's full of hubris, he's arrogant, and he's the king, and he's not going to take any, any crap from Dionysus. And he tells Dionysus that. And Dionysus says, yeah, I'm effeminate and all, but then on the other hand, I'm a god, and uh, that means I have a lot more power than you, and that means that you'd better uh, worship me. And Pentheus says, I don't worship things like you. I put things like you in jail. Solid. Okay. You lock him up, he walks away. You lock him up again, he walks away. Um, have any of you have ever had emotions that you tried to drive away and were unable to? You, perhaps, if not your friends, have also fallen in love with the wrong people. It happens. All right? You are not in charge of your feelings. You have them and do the best you can to deal with them, but that's what rationality really is. Accepting, in other words, this is a meditation on the limits of rationality. And there's an argument to make that that is the high point of rationality, when rationality finds its own limits. So yeah, he can be seen as an apologist for the irrational, for the Dionysian, but by recognizing that Look, when Dionysus comes to town, all bets are off. Um, that may turn out to be a rational response to the fact of human emotion. Ouch. So, us would-be rational people will actually achieve the highest level of rationality when we recognize that rationality has its limits. What's, what's dangerously irrational is the idea that rationality has no limits. Not only is that irrational, but it's a recipe for disaster. Pentheus is our poster boy for this. So he's going to straighten Dionysus out. He's going to lock him up. He's going to track down the main ads out. Now, remember, the main ads are out in nature, engaged in all kinds of weird sex, and they're all drunk. Right? So these are all the women of the city. They have left the city, left the nomos, and gone to the phusis. That's what nature is. 
So what Euripides is saying is, yeah, I know you have a lot of nomos, you have a lot of conventional laws. Let me tell you something about your emotions. They are not derived by rational laws. They are facts of nature, whether you like them or not. So when the women leave the city, they leave the nomos and go to the fusus. And this is unrestrained emotion, so there's a kind of weird lesbian orgy going on, along with uh, animals that are brought in that have some sort of sexual contact with them, which is really weird. They, they suckle snakes and things. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff dredged up from uh, the bottom of people's unconscious. And so Pentheus says, can't allow this kind of thing. You know, women are, you know, are, are violating the laws that I've promulgated. Dionysus says, well, would you like to go see them? And Pentheus says, well, yeah, now that you mention it, for official purposes, I should really go have a look at this. <laughs> Okay, um, he is not interested in viewing this for official purposes, but he does not know that. He says, wow, I mean, kind of weird sexual, you know, orgy with bears and snakes and stuff. This is going to be really weird. i got to get a look at this. All right. Well, no, what it is is he's got a libido too, it turns out, but he doesn't know it. He's under the illusion that he's rational. So whatever he did, um, one of the things you should try very hard to do in life is not to lie to yourself. You will find ways of justifying things that at some level you know are a bad idea for reasons you make up, official purposes. Yeah, um, you've all got those official purposes in you. So does everybody else. All right. So. He says, yeah, I really want to go out and see that because I, you know, I have to be on the spot to be able to be kingly in the right way. Dionysus knows better. Yeah, of course, son. no problem. He said, what you're going to have to do, though, is you're going to have to get dressed in drag. In other words, you're going to have to wear women's clothing because men aren't allowed there, except for me, and I'm Dionysus. And besides, I'm kind of hermaphroditic to begin with. He's, he's not ju just uh, soft, he's effeminate. Right. I mean, he's a, a kind of androgynous creature. I mean, he's male, but dubiously male. So he's going to lead the maenads going crazy in nature and all their animal friends and, you know, a large accumulation of alcohol. And he says, you really have to get dressed up as a woman. Pentheus says, okay. Um, then he comes out dressed as a woman in drag, right, which is comic. That's not tragic. And he says, how do I look? You like my hair? Um, Pentheus all right, is an unconscious drag queen. No, that's exactly what he is. He likes being dressed in women's clothing. He'd never admit that to himself or to anybody else. But he says, how do I look? Do I look good? You're a man in women's clothing. What the hell's wrong with you? The answer is, he wants to know if he looks pretty. <laughs> okay, can you see Pentheus' problem here? Pentheus does not know what his own motives are. He says, I have to do this as a matter of official policy. No, you are getting dressed up 
in women's clothing because you like the idea of looking pretty, right? which is really twisted, but you don't know that. And you want to go see this kind of lesbian animal orgy while everyone's drunk, and you think that's wholesome. No, it's not. But, look, when Dionysus comes to town, you'd best get ready. And Dionysus leads him out there, and you know, puts him up the tree, and then the women tear the tree down and tear him bit to bit. There are special Greek terms for tearing a living human being apart and eating them. Um, I don't remember, it's, it's like seven syllables, but it, you don't use it all that much except when you're talking about the Bacchae. But the point is, um, they cannibalize Pentheus, and they bring a few trophies home, like Agave with his head. And then Cadmus says to Agave, uh, that's not a lion's head. Which is not. And then the spell begins to break for her. She realizes and says, wow. I mean, he had it bad because he was king and then got torn apart by crazy maenads. Whereas I have it even worse now because I was leading them. And I killed my own children like Medea. But this in a real, much worse, weirder way. This is what happens to people that don't show a proper respect for Dionysus. What does that mean? Every one of us has those times in our life when Dionysus comes to town. Well, here's sage advice, because I'm an old man like Theresius and Cadmus. You want to find a way to deal with that that doesn't involve pretending that it's not there. Right? Because that never works, not ever. You're going to tie Dionysus up, good luck with that. You're going to put Dionysus in jail, good luck with that. The best you can hope to do is what Theresius and Cadmus do. Within the bounds of moral propriety, at least for Greece at this time, um, you show respect for Dionysus. Do not attempt to become something that isn't human. And that's what the attempt to become perfectly rational is. All right. There is more to life than arithmetic. And the motives that human beings have for what they do are at least as often irrational as rational, regardless of what they tell themselves. So what the Bacchae is, is Euripides' way of telling Athens, you're about to be destroyed because you didn't recognize Dionysus when he came to town. And now, you rational guys that know that might makes right and that justice is the advantage of the stronger, the inevitable downfall that comes from human arrogance is upon you. And it's too late to fix what you did wrong. What this means is this. The history of Athens is a large collective tragedy. You had a superior hero. If you want to find out who that collective subject is, you'll find it in Pericles' funeral oration. And this hero is so drunk on his own glory and on his own self-admiration, he says, we're as great as people are ever going to get. And that entitles us to do any kind of evil we want 
if our desires move in that direction, like the Melian dialogue. The, the strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. And we intend to be the strong forever. That hubris in Athens causes Athens to destroy itself. And the Bacchae is that moment of recognition when the city realizes, oh, I did this to myself. And recognizing that you did it to yourself is what makes the tragic hero tragic. In other words, you can't just get hit by lightning without realizing, oh, wow, I killed my father and had sex with my mother. If Oedipus just gets hit with lightning, that's not tragic. He has to say, oh, wow, I did this to myself, and now I die. Same sort of thing with Creon in the, in the Antigone. All right? So life imitates art. I mean, art imitates life because, well, what else would you use as your raw material? But it turns out once you have art, art begins to reflexively influence human life. In other words, we are imitative creatures. We do what we see. So we thought we were above reproach. We thought that we were invincible. We thought that we were heroic. Okay. All of those things are transitory. Calculate the downside as well as the upside before it's too late. At the point when Athens is seeing this, 405, they all know it's too late. You thought you were rational. The hell you were. Right? And you want to look around for who it is that caused you destruction? The answer is you. And when you recognize that, that's the tragic insight. Oh, wow. We were a great city, but we pushed the envelope a little too much, and then we ended up breaking it, and now our arrogance has come back to destroy us. This is the human condition, according to the Greeks. The best you can hope to be is heroic, but heroes inevitably cause their own demise if they keep pushing the envelope of heroism. That's why there are no Christian tragedies. For Christianity, you die, but then, you got to settle accounts with God. You have that final judgment. And God creates justice where there is no justice in the world. On the other hand, for the Greeks, there's no afterlife, no uh, account, moral accounting. When you die, you die. And then you're dead. Yeah, they have Hades, this kind of shadowy place where you can be a kind of shadow. But uh, they don't seem to have much moral import to the afterlife. So, the city that created tragedy turned itself into a tragedy. And their art form eventually helped determine their history. The most extraordinarily efflorescent and pyrotechnic of civilizations Blade. Have any of you seen magnesium burn? Okay, it's so bright you have to avert your eyes. That's what Greek culture is like. Um, in those three generations of Pericles and Athens, 
They had the largest collection of honest-to-God geniuses that have ever been incorporated into that small an area and that small a society. In other words, Euripides and Socrates know each other. So Euripides knows Sophocles. Sophocles knows Herodotus. Thucydides knows Herodotus and also knows Aeschylus. In other words, all these people know each other. And we're going to see that next week. We're doing Aristophanes next week? Okay. This is an easy time. All right. Um, Aristophanes is light, but it's going to tell us some important stuff about Athens. All right. And uh, we're doing the clouds, the frogs, and what else? What, is it Lysistrata? I think so. Mm -hmm. Okay. You, Lysistrata. Yes, you. But this time, tall. Uh, let's see, the clouds. You, the clouds. And finally, we have, what is it? Uh, the, 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 the frogs. Coax, coax, coax. Uh, who wants to do the frogs? Or should Everyone's examining the seal. <laughs> uh, let's have uh, you do the frogs. Yes, you. All right. Um, it'll, it'll be a short class next week because there's just not all that much going on. Uh, but it shows us something about the development of Greek culture. And also, this is John is really fun. <laughs> it is. It's really funny. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, why? Do people still make the same mistakes? The answer is yes. When Dionysus comes to town, they do the same stupid thing that the parents' generation did. You know? Do you think that Plato showed a proper respect for Dionysus? I know it's a loaded question. It's a hard question. Yeah, because um, on the one hand he gives the irrational what it wants, but on the other hand he puts it at the bottom and tries to keep it under control. Well, that actually strikes me as a pretty smart way of handling it. Um, feed the, the, the animal, but don't let it out of the zoo. <laughs> yeah, there's much to be said for that. Right? The bottom of society is going to be those that have appetites. And he's going to satisfy those appetites as much as possible, so long as they don't get unruly. I guess there's something to be said for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see going both ways on this. It's a very hard question. Yeah. Isn't that like also like the debate with Glaucon, I think, where he's talking about constantly having to fill, Socrates is talking about constantly having to fill the jars. Um, yeah. Um, the uh, appetites are never fully satisfied. As Hobbes is going to say when we read him next year, human beings are desiring machines, desiring animals, and we desire until we're dead. And you can tell that we're dead by the fact we don't have any more desires. All right? It's one way of looking at human nature. All right? We have lots of fun with that. But for now, we're going to actually kind of have an enjoyable hour, hour and a half. It won't be a long class on Aristophanes. You do have to read him in order to understand what's going on. But um, it's not nearly as difficult as some of the other works we're going to have towards the end of the term. So take your breather now. Do some stuff for your other classes. Read Aristophanes because he's funny. And you'll be just fine. I'll see you next week.